Rights Monday Symposium on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. This program takes place on the Gerigo land of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respect to the elders, past, present, and yet to come. My name is Ira and I will be with you for the next hour and a half. And with me in conversation today will be artist Elizabeth Pulley, whose retrospective exhibition is currently showing at the UNSW galleries here in Paddington. Back in the 80s and the 90s, Elizabeth Pulley was involved in a conceptual painting project, interrogating the definition of art and its commodity status. What is art has been the question behind all of her work, including the Relational Art Project, where she edited and published magazine called Lives of the Artists and ran the front room gallery from the front room and the kitchen of her house. She's currently, since about 2012, engaged in the End of Art Project, and her practice has expanded to embrace not only painting, but also sculptural textile works and video art. Stay tuned to find out more about Elizabeth Pulley's practice and the underlying philosophies here on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. Good morning, Elizabeth. Do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here, Ira. How are you? I am good. How is your morning? How did you start this very hot day? Um, I uh, My alarm woke me up at 7.30 and I did my yoga, had breakfast and then got ready for this. Is this your usual routine? 7.30, rise, uh, yoga, meditation... The yoga is usual, but the time that I get up varies because I'm a bad sleeper. So sometimes it's really early, sometimes I sleep in. Mm. It varies quite a bit, yeah. As I briefly mentioned in the introduction, your practice is divided in uh, what we could call three distinct phases or mm-hmm. self-assigned conceptual projects, and all of which in one way or the other interrogate the question, what is art and how do we define it? First, mm-hmm. there was a decorative painting phase, which lasted from, uh, I believe, 1988 to 1999. I'm taking this information from the catalogue, so please correct <laughs> me if, if anything yeah. is wrong. Uh, <laughs> then fine. came a relational art project from about 2002 to 2006 and uh, now you are ongoingly engaged in the end of our project which began in about 2012 and Mm -hmm. I'd like to unpack all of them but let's start with the beginning the decorative painting project you produce paintings with ornamental motifs in a machine-like manner can you tell us a bit about this phase and what it entailed and what was it motivated by? It began actually in second year at art school where I was feeling pretty lost for a subject to make art about or even an answer to what art was. I was straight out of high school when I went to art school, so I I was pretty naive, but I was just plagued by the question of what art actually was and also troubled by seeing other students around me who had strong themes or motivations for making work which I felt I lacked 
So for a while, through most of second year, I was making process art. I used to grid up different surfaces, different canvases or other surfaces, and then paint the same repeated mark in each square of the grid till it built up to a kind of a pattern. It was really just a way of filling in the painting, if you like, putting something on a surface due to the lack of anything in particular, I felt that I had to paint. And um, then I was doing that for a while, you know, most of that year and my studio was becoming wallpapered really in these um, gridded up artworks, which it ended up having a fairly decorative effect, I suppose. And um, a few things happened around the same time. I became aware of commodity art, which was big in the late 1980s, especially mm -hmm. perhaps in New York. And I was also um, educating myself about what modernist art was because I couldn't get a clear answer on that from my um, lecture program at art school, unfortunately. But the book that I just happened upon was um, maybe a French book. I don't, I don't remember what the title or author was, but it explained modernism, modern art, say from the late 19th century up to around the 1960s, 70s, as a series of movements wherein each art movement critiqued or challenged the definition of art for their time by making quite radical artworks. And so those things combined with a comment from a, one of my lecturers at art school when they saw this um, pattern thing going on and they made a comment that I should be careful that my work isn't, that it doesn't become just decorative. Mm -hmm. And um, that made me think, about what art was and I, I thought well if art can't be decoration and modern art was like a challenging of these kind of structures or definitions of art I thought I'd deliberately set out to make decorative art in a way to sort of I guess challenge the way art was thought about mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and to see if that had any real effect actually it was a kind of an experiment mm -hmm. to see what would happen to openly make art that was just decorative, both in the content of the work, but also in its function. Because I, I was troubled by the way that at art school we would talk quite seriously and analytic, analytically about work. But I knew at the same time that there's a real business aspect to art, which I think commodity art was kind of critiquing or playing with. Mm. And I was making a kind of a statement that art is just decoration, that where it ends up often, not always, but, you know, frequently, especially if it's painting, is in a house or a collection where it becomes decorative, it becomes a piece of furniture or part of the surrounding. Mm. It's a kind of a subversive method in a way. And I think I read you mentioning in this reader that is part of the survey exhibition at UNSW Galleries that you were mm -hmm. cynically churning out paintings for sale. <laughs> and uh, you also refer to this project as commodity art project. And as you were saying, you were commenting and testing this uh, appropriation of the art by the market and by the institutions. And mm. another aspect of this practice was this machine 
machine-like production, which was a bit like Andy Warhol's factory. So um, you did mention that the motives of these paintings were borrowed from various decorative styles, such as Art Deco and Chinese ornaments. And a lot of them came from the book that was published back in uh, late uh, 1800s called The Grammar of Ornament. So these Mm -hmm. paintings uh, were a kind of ready-made compositions. And uh, as I mentioned, they were produced in this machine-like style with uh, detachment from the meaning and symbolism from your part. Could you talk Mm. to us about the necessity of this machine-like approach and uh, why was it relevant for what you were attempting to express at the time? So I was really trying to emphasise my works as superficial because I suppose that is a reading of decoration versus art is that art is somehow meaningful and decoration isn't. And I know these binaries are increasingly challenged, but we have to remember it was 30 years ago and I was quite young, so Mm -hmm. I was taking it fairly literally. But um, I wanted the work to be a surface, to be empty, to not be able to be read as a concern with a theme or a meaning. I was really actively trying to not have, to empty my work of meaning, say. Mm And so that was why I wanted to borrow the motifs as well as to borrow from a multitude of styles of decoration in order to emphasise the lack of myself as an artist or as the author of the work. I did modify what I copied from the grammar of ornament to fit, you know, the different formats, but the motifs were essentially from there in the early days. And then the machine-like production was a bit of a dream that wasn't quite realised because my hope was that it would become a business as commodity Mm -hmm. art seemed to become for more well-known artists overseas, including Warhol, as you mentioned. Mark Kostabi after him in the 80s was a very big and had a fairly cynical business art model going on and a very successful one in in terms of making money and um, having high output. So I thought that my my dream was to have a business where I could save the templates, the cardboard cutouts that I made or the stencils, because I didn't want to paint the paintings by hand. I didn't want to have brush marks in it. So I would stencil every, every circle, every flower and use masking tape for the straight lines just so that I could have, you know, neat lines that were sort of machine like which ironically ended up becoming quite a laborious handmade mm-hmm. <laughs> production that burnt me out. Um, Actually, but, now that you, sorry to interrupt, but um, right. uh, now that you're mentioning a laborious aspect of it, there was a question at this uh, curator's talk of your exhibition that I went mm-hmm. to. Somebody asked whether you had joy making these works or was it purely just <laughs> I'm a machine and totally detached emotionally <laughs> from the whole thing? Yeah, that's a good question, actually, because I wanted to be detached emotionally, but it's in my nature to enjoy repetitive work and to be busy. So it it was enjoyable. You know, there is joy in the work. And I think that sort of comes across in the way it looks. There's nothing very depressed seeming about it or anxious. It's quite colourful and uplifting, I suppose. Mm. So... Um, There was joy in it and also the real joy came from engaging in work that felt meaningful. You know, I had a project that I was working within that gave me real structure, whereas prior to that 
I was kind of casting about for a style or a subject or some meaningful way to approach art making. And so when I had this structure where I could only make, my idea was that I would make decorative paintings for the rest of my life. Like this was a big 21, 20 year old decision for how my life was going to be. It would only be decorative. I would only borrow the motifs and I wouldn't put myself in the work. And to have that was a, was a comfortable place to be because then I could just make the work without thinking too much about it, apart mm. from the logistics or the practicalities. Mm. Yeah. But that didn't happen because uh, uh, <laughs> I think uh, some 11 years or so after and you have by that point produced about um, close to 200 decorative paintings. But then mm. ultimately you felt that this attempt to irritate the art world was a failure. <laughs> and uh, this was because uh, what you were producing was readily absorbed into the art world by yeah. the institutions. So you gave up of this conceptual project and... Mm -hmm. When you speak about a failure, I'm curious what you have in mind. And this was another question that came from the audience the other day at the exhibition. They were curious, what would you then consider success of this project if yeah. what happened was a failure? I know it's a bit paradoxical, the answer to that question, because the failure lies in the fact that my work actually didn't receive any pushback. Making art that was just decoration, didn't challenge what art was. It was readily accepted into the institutions of art. You know, I was exhibiting at places like the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, who purchased one of the bigger works that's on show at UNSW galleries. I was exhibiting at artist-run spaces and public spaces, and I didn't get the pushback I expected, or say the outrage is what I was thinking. People, is how I was imagining someone would react like you can't do this you know this mm -hmm. is an artist's decoration that literally never happened and very serious theorists some wrote well a, a couple about what I was really doing but others would write meaning into the work that mm -hmm. I was really hoping wouldn't be there and I think we're just trained today to if we see something in a gallery even non-art world people who aren't artists or collectors say or don't work in the art world I think we've all pretty much been trained to take meaning from anything we see in a gallery context mm -hmm. um, we read it as art therefore it has meaning so that that was what happened to my project and that its radicality was never realized so that was the failure but the success the work had to be, in a way, accepted by the institution if it was going to make sense. There was no point me sitting and making these works quietly in a studio because then no one would see it and who cares. So it was it's a tricky thing to talk about. It had to be accepted by the institutions of art, but then its acceptance kind of symbolised its failure at the same time. Mm. But, it, you know, the end of the project also coincided with, I guess, it was, well, there was that sense of disenchantment with the project, but it was, a, I was, you know, getting to sort of 27, 28 years old and um, a lot of personal things happened in my life that added to the whole disintegration of the project, you could say. Mm. This um, 
availability for the outrage and radicalism in art uh, is even less available, I guess, these days. And we will come back to that when we speak mm. about your most recent project, The End of Art. But uh, let's move from this phase, the decorative painting phase, which, mm-hmm. uh, as mentioned, ended sometimes in late 90s, close yeah. to 2000s. And after this decorative painting project, you embarked on the relational art project where your main focus was interacting with other artists. The project was very much based on conversation and perhaps something that we could call dialogical art in a way. And during this period, you initiated a magazine. It was called The Lives of the Artists, Mm -hmm. where you interviewed artists about their social and political concerns, for instance, their daily jobs, their attempts to make it overseas, and so on. What inspired you to make this transition from solitary making to engaging in conversations with other artists? And what kind of questions were you burning to ask them at the time? (laughs) Um, So I didn't conceive of my relational work as a project when I was doing it. The disillusionment with the studio practice that I had going, the decorative painting project, led me to a point where I was I was still making and exhibiting work, but the w- best way I can describe those works is as doodles in a way. I didn't know what I was doing because mm-hmm. I didn't have a project, so I was really just feeling a bit lost with what to make as art, but still making art. But my turn towards trying to frame artists' relations or networks as art was because I was looking for something real that I could say about what art was. So with my decorative painting project, it felt real to say art is decoration because it frequently is. So what felt real at that point in my life, in my late 20s, was I was starting to go to a lot of artist-run initiative events, openings that were in Sydney CBD at that time in the early 90s because... um, sorry, the late 90s, because uh, real estate was cheap. So we had friends that were renting warehouses in the CBD or houses and running galleries and other projects. And there was just a big party scene like you have at that time in your life. And I began to feel that it was our relationships and the events surrounding the exhibitions and projects that that was something else that was real about art and that was quite exclusive to artists that even though you invite a general public in, they frequently don't aren't interested, say, in a gallery in someone's house or backyard, but the art world is. And so it just felt like this was the next real thing I could say, that art is in our activities and our networks and our friendships. And I was aware that this is a practice. To frame artists' relations and activities as art is not a new thing. And I was aware that lots of artists globally run these projects today and were at the time and have been since well all throughout modernism but particularly since the 60s and 70s so I didn't feel I was doing anything particularly new or challenging but it just felt real for me at the time Mm -hmm. yeah and at this time also writing became an integral part of your practice and apart from conducting these interviews you were also writing reviews about other people's works and exhibitions. And for Mm. some of these articles, as far as I understand, you took on a pseudonym, a fake persona. (laughs) So in a way, 
this could be uh, seen or interpreted as a performative work. Is this oh, how yeah. you thought of it? What was the reasoning behind taking on a false name? So the false name in my magazine, Lives of the Artists, I only really used for reviews that were of non-art-related subjects, such as one was for Apricot Danishes and I think another one was for a concert by the band Queens of the Stone Age. And I used the name Ali Young to write those. But really it was, when I made the magazine, I realised how hard it is to get content for a magazine and to tie people down to deadlines. So I was kind of padding it out a bit by putting these reviews, light-hearted reviews in under a pseudonym because I didn't want the whole magazine to be written by Elizabeth Purely. So mm -hmm. that was really the reason. I didn't think of it as a performance, but that's a, I, I like that idea. I like to think of it as performative, yeah. Mm. We'll come back to talk more about this uh, performative aspect of the practice again when we touch on the End of Art project. But I uh, just want to stay for a bit longer with the Life of Artists magazine. What I found really fascinating and wonderful about it is that uh, you created an invaluable archive of a particular time in Australian art history. As somebody mm. who hasn't lived in Australia back then, because I was in Europe, where I'm from, it was just a beautiful um, insight into what was happening there then and also a way to get inspired about what could be happening potentially now. Uh, I'm wondering right. if um, as somebody who was part of this Aris scene back in the early 2000s, late 90s, have you been following Aris scene nowadays? And if so, do you feel there is enough of it? And is, is it in any way different than what was happening back then? Um, I do go to a few ARIs. You know, the lockdowns kind of put an end to those events for quite a while. And, yeah, the ones I go to pretty much do follow the same model as they did back in the early 2000s, I suppose. But I think there's an increased professionalism to some of the ARIs now, and that's a good thing. You know, they receive funding, they pay artists where... Back then you had to pay to show. Sometimes now you can be paid to exhibit in an ARI. Not all of them, but some of them. So there's increased support, which is a good thing. And I'm also aware that it can feel like when you get older and you're less in touch with younger artists, it can seem like there are less ARIs now than there used to be. But I'm okay, I, I teach at the National Arts School mm -hmm. and I'm in touch with younger artists. And I, I think there's probably just as many artist-run initiatives happening now as there was back then. It's just that there's that sense of it's a particular circle of people or a network that are invited, that frequent those spaces. So I, I feel like it's something that stays fairly constant mm -hmm. through time. And it's if you're in it, you're in it. And if you're not, you perhaps don't, you're, you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the time of this relational art phase, you also ran an ARI of your own, which mm. was called The Front Room. And you basically opened the front room of your own house and yeah. you were exhibiting other artists and mostly underrepresented artists' works there. What was the impetus behind this idea and how did it work in practice? Who exhibited there? Who attended? How was it promoted? How did you choose who will exhibit? Did you have open calls or 
or proactively went to search for artists that you wanted to show and invite to your home, basically? Yeah. One of the main motivators was that in my um, frequenting of other artist-run initiatives, and I also travelled overseas a bit at that point in the early 2000s, late 1990s, I just felt that there were a lot of artists showing locally in artist-run initiatives that were making really high-quality work, which when I travelled overseas, I didn't... I felt like it was... A lot of what I saw here was as good as, if not more interesting than what I was seeing in big galleries there or even artist-run initiatives there. And it just seemed wrong that these artists weren't being represented by commercial galleries or museums, you know, because it's very difficult to break into the professional scene as an artist and not always the best work is exhibited in those places. So I, a, a big motivator, not the sole motivation for running a gallery in my house, but a big one was to represent those practices that I felt were really good quality but weren't having any airtime in the art world or, or enough. So I ran the gallery front room with my partner of the time, Jay Balby, and between us we knew enough artists that we thought were really good that we didn't call for proposals for the space. We um, invited artists to show. And that was important to us. Even though the proposal system is viewed as being egalitarian or democratic, like a gallery puts out an open call, anyone can apply, and we'll pick from the proposals. It's actually a bit of a flawed system in the end because it's a lot of work for an artist to write a proposal, get images together, make a PowerPoint, mm -hmm. etc. Um, and a lot of people apply, even for artist-run initiatives that you have to pay for. Those galleries receive heaps of proposals, as far as I know. And so it's a lot of work to sift through them. So on both ends, it's a lot of work. Whereas to me, it made sense. If I know an artist, I know their practice, I'll just invite them to show and to do whatever they want. They don't have to propose it in advance because not all artists work with a proposal or a theme. Some people work in the space with what they have. Some people don't even make a work or they can't articulate what they're doing. It's actually the work itself that talks. So it was practical on all counts, I thought, and respectful of these artists' practices to just invite them Mm -hmm. um, to do what they liked. So we had plenty of artists to fill. It was set up as a two-year project. I didn't want it to go longer. I wanted it to be seen as a project and therefore as an artwork in mm -hmm. a way. So two years. We started with one show a month. We ended up shortening it to three weeks so we could fit more artists in. And, um, yeah, basically artists had to be not commercially represented at the time mm. and... And that's what we based our decisions on, as well as the quality of the work. And uh, did they need to pay the rent or how were you financing yourself uh, to, to be able yeah. to do that? Because uh, as far as I understand, one of the things that you also initiated was opening the kitchen area of your house where the artists would, uh, exhibiting artists would also be invited to curate or create menus for the visitors yeah. or the guests. And yeah. you would give them... $20, I believe, and that was at a time enough to actually feed uh, the whole group of people. So yeah, I'm wondering I, where I this actually, money came from as well for you to be able yeah. to sustain this for two years. 
<laughs> I should correct that $20 budget because I recently reread the front room catalog and it was, I think it was more like $30 or $40. So mm -hmm. it was more than 20 So I've been spreading that myth for a few years now. But um, we only charged, I think it was $120 to show in the front room because we were lucky enough to, this is a family home and I don't pay rent. So I was able to charge for just the costs of running the show. So it was 2002 to 2003, we were making the transition from hard copy invites, etc., to email. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of between those worlds. So there were costs associated with, I guess, printing invites, posting invites, printing room sheets, and buying alcohol for the opening. So I think it was only $120 for a three or four week exhibition. And then we didn't charge commission on sales i felt like that was a way to make it less prohibitive for artists or to if they got the full amount of their sale that i thought that was a good thing mm -hmm. because we didn't actively try to sell work we just exhibited it and then if it sold that was a bit of a bonus mm -hmm. but the kitchen project happened organically at first the front room was just the front room of the house but when the opening finished say at 8 eight thirty there were people still left behind who were friends. And so um, we would shut the front door but let everyone who was left behind, we would invite them to come back into the kitchen to keep partying. Mm -hmm. And Jay began to cook sausage sandwiches because we were hungry, but yeah. he bought pretty bad quality sausages and white bread and people got sick of that. So the artists themselves who were there, began to offer to cook the meal. And so that's how the menu thing started. But we also realised the kitchen presented another alternative exhibition space. So that opened up after a few months as well. So we could show two artists at once. And I think the kitchen show was a free exhibition and it just kind of integrated, I suppose, the idea of viewing art or being with art with socialising. Mm. Yeah. And given that uh, these exhibitions were running for three weeks, does that mean that you had to mind the space and be in your house all yeah. the time to actually let people in to see the exhibitions throughout the week? Or was that something that uh, exhibiting artists were in charge, so they were in your house for three weeks? Or how did that work? <laughs> no, uh, so we only opened Friday and Saturday, 12 till 6, I think, mm -hmm. something like that, which to me felt manageable. Like, surely I can stay home every Friday and Saturday between 12 and 6, but actually did start to feel quite restrictive, strangely. Yeah. So the artists weren't obliged to be at the gallery and some artists like to be at their shows and hang around and they could and I liked that and other artists don't do that. So the nature of the traffic into the house really varied from exhibition to exhibition. But I liked that part of running front room, that social aspect of bringing people into the house mm. and meeting a, a variety of people. It was really good. But it's it, I described it a bit, and I think other people that work in galleries and man exhibitions would get this feeling as well as it's like living at a bus stop in a way. Yeah. You're, it's very public, so you have to let everyone in. They might stay for a really long time, and that could be either a good or a bad thing. So Yeah. 
it had its ups and downs. Mm. There is a, just uh, so listeners know about this one, there is a similar project in a way called Home at 735, which is, um, I think, on Burke Street. And I'm just, as you were mentioning this, you know, considering the times we are in, COVID times, where it's really tricky to actually run those spaces because you don't want too many people coming through your house at the moment. It's even harder than yeah, actually true. having an external yeah. gallery space. So I'm sure that this current home gallery is... Um, probably keeping the door shut for this whole <laughs> period which is a shame um yeah you did mention how you did consider this uh, relational art project projects as as part of your art practice and i'm wondering also if doing these conversations uh, with other artists and exhibiting their work affected or inspired your subsequent practice in any way because you said that it was actually sparked by your lack of uh, maybe inspiration or feeling a bit lost <laughs> in your practice at the time so i'm wondering right. if it kind of changed that and helped you to find this this new phase that you were embarking on later on um, uh, no, I, I can't say there was any really, I wasn't conscious of being inspired by the artists I was interviewing for the magazine or the artists I was exhibiting, apart from appreciating their work or their practices for one reason or another. But, uh, no, I, I, to be honest, no, <laughs> but yes. their work didn't inspire my future. Yeah. projects i mean not consciously they pro it probably did subconsciously mm. yeah mm. Mm. you're on radio 89.7 fm this is arts monday Symposis, and i'm on call to artist elizabeth pulley and we're talking about her career which has uh, been guided by the interest in the ontology of art and questioning what art is Elizabeth Pulley's retrospective is currently showing at the unsw galleries here in paddington We'll have a short music break now just to stretch our legs and grab a glass of water and then come back to talk more about Elizabeth Pulley's practice and in particular her most recent project called The End of Art. Your Nisted Radio 89.7 FM. This radio 89.7 FM. We are currently listening to a tune called Sonic Womb, and it is by Suzanne Chiani, who is one of the pioneering female electronic musicians featured in a film uh, that is coming to Sydney shortly. The documentary is called Sisters with Transitors, which is uh, narrated by Laurie Anderson, and it will screen on the 5th and the 10th of February at Dandy Newtown and at the Chevelle Cinema here in Paddington as part of the Antenna Film Festival and organized by the Groove Scooter, which is a fantastic organization bringing some really groundbreaking films to the Australian audiences, mainly here in Sydney, and it's run by Paris Pompour and Georgie Zuzak, who is one of the voices of our Merchants of Sound program here on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. My name is Ira, this is Arts Monday Symposium. 
Oasis. And I uh, have been in conversation and still am in conversation with artist Elizabeth Pulley, who is showing a retrospective exhibition currently at the UNSW galleries here in Paddington. We have so far talked about two of her projects, the decorative painting project and the relational arts project. And uh, we will now touch on the third uh, project that she's been engaged with in her career. And this one uh, was since about 2012. And it uh, has been um, titled The End of Art Project. And Elizabeth, uh, this project uh, came as a reaction to the contemporary arts stance that everything can be art and everything is accepted as art, including cooking and walking and playing chess and so on. So here... As far as I'm understanding, you come back again to this interrogation of what is art and how do we define it. And uh, mm. in a way, you encounter a problem because if everything is art, then what is art and why do we even need this category? Because there is nothing to define it against. So, yeah, tell me a bit about this problem that you have encountered. And also, I am actually curious if you do see it as necessarily a problem or in what other words, are you against mm. this idea that everything is art and everyone is an artist or are you simply just pointing to the fact? Yeah, I'm more pointing to the fact. Um, so when you described it as a problem, yeah, it's not, it's, it, it could be a problem. It's not a problem for a lot of for most people, so I feel a bit alone, not alone, but I feel it's not a fashionable, perhaps, angle to take on contemporary art or the contemporary to describe it as a problem. And it's both a problem and not a problem, I suppose. Similarly to my the failure or success of my decorative painting project, this moment comes at arguably the end of the modernist narrative of progress of art self-critical tendency or self-questioning philosophical say project and it's landed in a place really an ideal place of theoretically absolute freedom where we can anyone as you say anyone can be an artist and any format or form is acceptable as art including lack of form so an, an ephemeral artwork that you can't see or an action or a moment in time or an activity can be framed as art. And so whether that's a problem or not is debatable, but it's something I find historically really interesting. And if we do call it a problem, I find it an interesting problem to try to work with as an artist mm -hmm. um, in that I like to have a, a conundrum, say, something to work through or work on as art it's kind of I guess it's a bit of a uh, I don't know if it's nostalgia but it's it's an attempt to see if that modernist project of self-critique can still be maintained in the current moment mm -hmm. um, that would describe the entirety of, of what I do mm -hmm. yeah one of the things that earlier in the show you mentioned in relation to giving up on the decorative painting project was that uh, you were not receiving an outrage or um, mm. that it didn't feel like it was radical in a way or that it can shock or surprise. Mm. And I guess yeah. maybe that's where this problem with uh, when everything is accepted as art, there is a loss of this potential uh, for the rebellion or resistance <laughs> yeah, or critique. Exactly. Yeah. And it is something that you are mentioning again in this reader that is part of the exhibition. 
And then given that uh, definition of what is art is guarding your practice, I was wondering if this is maybe a definition that you see of art, that it is something that's supposed to be rebellious in, in some way and show the social and political resistance. <laughs> I mean, I feel a little self-conscious admitting to that. I was quite young, I guess, when I got this idea that art needed to question or confront itself, if not societal structures generally. But I'm aware that it could be viewed as a little, um, I don't know, of a knee-jerk kind of response to automatically want to question what is art or challenge it, you know? it's What's the word for that when you're um, just automatically opposing everything anyway uh, it, it, it could seem a little infantile perhaps mm -hmm. to want to to want to maintain this trajectory but for me personally there's no real impetus to make art without what i would describe as this philosophical approach to the existence of art itself to its to an ontological approach towards being an artist or creating art so it's just a personal thing that it keeps me entertained enough to be an artist and without it there's no other reason for me to engage mm -hmm. with art. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but that sort of explains this radicality or this reaching for this questioning spirit, I suppose, that I have. Mm. Yeah. This uh, actually reminds me of another thing that you said, I, again, think in the reader, <laughs> I've been reading the reader a lot in the last few days. <laughs> it's, it's, I really appreciate it's that. It's fantastic. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I believe I'm quoting you here. You said that as a practitioner, an end of art statement made in conjunction with ongoing practice is empowering. And it is there is this paradox when you call a project the end of art, but then you keep producing art. And mm. there was a lovely uh, observation that your curator, uh, James Gutt, made uh, at the talk, how within this project you also use lots of symbols of the beginning, such as eggs and flowers and vaginas. <laughs> and right. so um, I, I'm curious when you... And maybe you already answered the question when, when you come to this point that the art has ended because everything is art, but then you still find this drive in yourself to keep making and keep producing. And you did mention earlier that it is my nature to be busy. <laughs> so yeah, how do you explain this ongoing motivation to make? What drives that? Um, I, so I suppose, I mean, to be honest, I all through my childhood, like a lot of children, I made a lot of art uh, just automatically and was very involved in craft projects so the material creation of work is definitely part of my nature so I'm not denying that but when it comes to making art uh, as well as having this sense that art needs to be questioning or radical I was aware that we treat it with so much respect we almost build cathedrals to art with these museums that are built to house and exhibit art objects so to me it's not enough to just make objects that fill the role of art it, we have to do something fairly significant i feel to justify the value we attribute to artists activity or output and so with this current end of art project that i'm engaged with as you mentioned there's a paradox there's a a negative or a nihilistic kind of statement the end of art which is fairly 
confronting and not a nice idea, I'm guessing, for most people, although it does have a big historical, theoretical development alongside modern art. So the end of art has been discussed or theorised right up until, you know, the 2000s, particularly by the theorist Arthur Danto, who was an artist. He began as an artist and a philosopher. But once he realised in the late, I think the late 60s, that there was a certain end to art at his time, he gave up making art. That was a natural response to the idea, the end of art. And that would be a, a logical question. If you're saying the end of art, why keep making it, you know? But that's the paradox or the tension that I want to encompass mm. through my practice by saying the end of art but then continuing to make a lot of art at the same time. I'm trying to embody what I see as a contemporary moment where a certain end of art has occurred but art continues to proliferate and be produced and so I'm really just trying to embody that reality mm. yeah in this end of art phase you also embrace the variety of mediums so not only painting mm. but uh, well firstly you began painting on other materials such as hessian and <laughs> then you also branched into textile work such as embroidery and even video art why this expansion and and how did this transition from painting to these other mediums come about so uh, even through my decorative painting project, which I viewed as a conceptual art project, people would refer to me as a painter. And that was already too much for me, uh, too much meaning being read into what I was doing because I'm not concerned with painting. I'm not tied to it. It was just I chose that medium for the decorative paintings because painting is perhaps the most easily commodifiable of the um, mediums say it's or the most traditional you know so many people you say i'm an artist they're like oh what do you paint you know it's the automatic go-to frequently for people when they think of art so it, i was really trying to embody the cliche of what art was by choosing painting but it was it was frustrating to me that people thought i was a painter or referred to me as that so that's one part of me wanting to broaden my the media that i use but the other big one is that the idea of the end of art in the contemporary moment is that um, the, you know, say in the conceptual era where art was reduced to its minimum, which was basically a concept, art as an idea, rather than art as necessarily being in an object. Ironically, perhaps frustratingly, what that resulted in was the opening of the definition of art to encompass every medium, as we said before, including no media. And so that's another thing I'm trying to embody within my practice is the openness of art as a concept to every single form, including absolute lack of form. Mm. And yeah. including what artists do in their daily lives as well, as we spoke, where yeah. it becomes performative yeah. as well. Mm. And uh, there is a video that's been commissioned as part of this exhibition that's currently on at the UNSW Galleries, your retrospective. And uh, in it, you have recorded yourself enacting a sequence, a yoga sequence uh, that is called Heaven in Love. And it is uh, part of uh, something that is called calligraphy yoga, which you have been practicing since 2014. 
Well, firstly, I, I want to touch on this yoga part of your own personal life. When did that start and, and how did it uh, maybe change or alter or refresh your own uh, practice and repertoire, if, if you did it anyway? Yeah, I started doing yoga fairly intuitively. I guess like most people, when they find the practice they love, I just, um, I guess it was around when I finished the decorative painting project and which coincides with a kind of a deepening or even the beginning of a kind of a spiritual practice that I kind of needed to get through <laughs> life, you know, and that I've just been building on since. And so the yoga coincided with a kind of a Zen meditation practice that I had. And I guess I pointed to that, to that by including yoga and meditation motifs in my work during that relational period where I wasn't really, where I was making just whatever I, whatever came to mind at the time. But um, I guess the spiritual part of, in relation to my end of art project, I haven't had, so I wrote my PhD between 2012 and 2016 about the end of art in relation to contemporary practice. And I haven't had a chance to really take the ideas in that further, but my plan is to research and write about a sense of, say, arts development through the modern to the current moment, the development of the concept art and how it relates to spirituality somehow. And I find it sort of hard to talk about because I haven't really formulated it yet. But I have this sense that, and this relates back to Hegel's ideas at the outset of the modern period, that spirit, or geist as he calls it, through a kind of a dialectical progression, develops itself towards a certain point. So it's kind of speaking of humanity or, you know, the unified human spirit as building towards something in a kind of a looping way. And I, yeah, sorry I sound vague about it. I will mm. one day be able yeah. to talk about it better. But I did want to link that idea of spirituality and art somehow mm. within the survey at UNSW Galleries, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece uh, that's actually quite beautifully edited as well, I, I thought, because uh, it's focusing on uh, flesh and the skin. Yeah. And uh, the body is foregrounded here. And I feel that the body has been coming a bit more forward in some other of your works in this period, uh, including the, the female figures that you made for a feminist conference a couple of years ago. And mm. in some way, very tangentially, that brings me to a question and this statement that you also made. And I think it was for AAA and Z conference one year where you uh, were speaking about uh, how contemporary art is necessarily performative and that to be an artist these days is a performance. Mm. Could you expand on that thought a little bit? Yeah, it was an idea I had for a way to approach an art practice at a time when I felt the perhaps the nihilism of a negative end of art statement. So if I consider my being an artist a performance, I also consider the objects of that practice as props that signify or indicate that I am an artist and I am making art. And I guess it's a way to empty, again, hopefully, further empty 
the significance of my work or the significance of what I do perhaps to be if it's if it's a performance maybe there's no other reading to it or it's it's again a maybe a superficial approach towards art making or maybe it's a way of devaluing art activity and objects in the hope of re-emphasizing or revaluing art as a concept over a product mm-hmm. i don't know if that really explains it very well these are all still unformulated ideas that i'm kind of pointing towards rather than things i've fully resolved perhaps mm. yeah so the end of our project now again feels like what i'll be doing for the rest of my life but it feels more manageable than the decorative painting project which had very strong boundaries like it had to be decorative i couldn't put my own hand in the work this end of art project is a complete opening up and i can do really anything as part of it i can do a speech or write an article or make a curtain or a performance or run a, a group so mm. yeah it's a more it's a more manageable way <laughs> to mm. give myself a project that i can do for the rest of my life Yeah. In, if you know what I mean. Yeah, mm. it's very open. Yeah, yeah. very liberating and uh, I think you and James got in the reader as well in the interview I think he has done with you or you did with him. You speak about this uh, freedom and uh, how mm. in some way the, the art is always pointing or searching for this freedom. And I was contemplating about that in connection to meditations as well, which are a way to empty your mind and create mm. space, this free yeah. mental space for the new ideas to come, to yeah. enter from the subconscious to conscious and uh, eventually sure. find form. Yeah. And, and maybe that was where I was heading with that question, whether yoga brought some refreshment to your practice in that way. That Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that, but that's really actually valid because so many of my ideas do come when I'm meditating or doing yoga. So mm. that's, um, that's true. But I think I also thought of the, what was it? So the, the breathing is, quite emphasized in the video you can hear it from the end of art room where you're looking at objects there's a vague soundtrack of my breath yeah and i also wanted to equate this sense of the nihilism or the emptiness of an end of art statement like the finality of that or the void perhaps that that might represent what we do in the face of such a void or in the face of something so final is perhaps just exist you know which is what breathing is you're in mm-hmm. the moment you're connecting your higher self say your body with your spirit or with collective spirit so there's a sense of at the end what do you do you just you just be kind yeah. of thing so which is yeah a similar idea i suppose mm. to what you were saying And it encourages yeah. us to pause and, uh, again, coming back to this uh, high productivity that uh, you seem <laughs> to be prone of and many of us are and there is a sense of guilt when we stop and we don't produce. And then, yeah. as we talked about potential of radicality today, not... And I think it's been now done and co-opted by institutions again, but there is a lot of talk about resistance to make and how maybe the most radical thing nowadays is to not produce and to resist yeah. this impulse to produce. So I'm wondering, do you, do you ever pause and do you actually actively make an effort to, to stop making? 
<laughs> um, I just do whatever is coming up at the time. You know, I, I, I stop. I guess meditating daily is a way of stopping, you know, in a regular way. But I never... So to me, the most radical act you could do as an artist today is to give up art altogether, which Danto did and several artists I know did. An artist I respect from the 60s, Leah Lozano, a conceptual artist, she gave up making work or even associating with the art world as an artwork. And I point to that a lot in my writing as a real... It's a very authentic response to the idea that art has ended. If it's ended, you would stop. And so... I was um, contemplating stopping before my end of art project mm -hmm. and before the PhD. I really reached a point which I can remember where I was thinking, what do I do now? You know, my, pro my art works. I, I had a baby in 2006 and having him kind of naturally ended my relational projects, which took up a lot of time. So I knew I'd have to put an end to those to spend time nurturing a child but um, it was also a question of what am I going to do now as an artist? What is my next project or my approach? What can I say? And I had a fork in the road moment where I was really enjoying yoga and thinking I'd like to teach that. But it kind of wasn't happening organically. I wasn't seeming to, able to get in on the teacher thing. But I also was presented with the opportunity of being paid through a grant to do my PhD at Sydney College of the Arts at Sydney University. So it was like a real toss-up, like teach yoga, like give up art and teach yoga or continue on the art trail and do the PhD. And the, the PhD thing seemed to flow better, so I went where the love was and, and then I had to think of my question for the thesis, you know, which has to be an engaging question and an important question to keep your attention held for four years, three to four years. And that was then the next thing I had to think of. What do I say now when I feel everything's been said? What do we do now when everything's been done, in a, you know, when you think of it in a very basic way? And that's when I felt that there was, I framed it at the time as, it's like the death of art, you know, the end of that modernist self-questioning progression, that history feels like the death or the end because there's no really strong crucial questioning left to make mm -hmm. and so that's what I that's really how I came up with the end of art as a statement and how, and that precipitated my uh, research down that road mm. yeah now that you mentioned that, I'm thinking about you know, you know thinking about Buddhism and uh, the thoughts that the end is, is always a beginning as well. So yeah. there comes that paradox of bringing the beginning and end in um, yeah. in a harmony in a way. Yeah. You're on Eastern Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Symposies. My name is Ira, and I am in conversation with artist Elizabeth Pulley, whose retrospective exhibition is currently showing at the UNSW Galleries here in Paddington. And we are coming uh, close to the end of the show, another 10 minutes or so. And I just want to briefly touch on the actual exhibition that we are speaking about in a way here. The survey exhibition is called 117 parentheses survey. And you're actually giving the number to the exhibition because all of your work to date has been numbered and mm -hmm. you have seen the making of the exhibition and your collaboration with the curator, James Gutt, as a work 
work in itself, where the whole mm. practice that uh, is shown, selection of which obviously shown, is seen as one work, one organism. Can mm. you talk to me a bit about this synergy that you have created with your curator and what makes this experience good, I guess is a very simple word, but what makes it work and, and how do you feel as an artist comforted and, and safe in the hands of the curator? What does <laughs> it happen for you to feel that way? Um, so James Gatt, the curator, and I, I think we have a fairly special relationship that you don't often find in the art world he's 20 years younger than me so he could be my son but um he's a very engaged curator he has an art making background and he's very passionate about art and when we became friends a few years ago now when he began working at Cotia gallery which is the gallery that represents me in paddington we just clicked, you know, there's people in life that you meet and you just are on the same level and he really understands what I'm doing and he was really the obvious choice to curate my survey because he automatically seems to know what I mean and he's also just a really hard worker and very professional. So he's been just invaluable to the development of the whole exhibition as well as my more recent practice through other exhibitions that he's curated mm. and included my work in. So I felt it was only it was it was logical to to credit him as a co-creator of the exhibition, and it was important to me to frame the exhibition and the whole um, project, which is funded by the Commissioners Circle that Jose de Silva, the director at UNSW Galleries, has um, set up. It's a very generous commission that's allowed me to also make the reader and a website and um, hold some events. So altogether, the whole survey isn't just the works in the gallery. It's a, a lot of other associated events. I just wanted to look at the survey as a kind of a format for an artwork in order to almost make a statement that it's the development of an artist's practice over time or the thread that goes throughout each artist's work that is the work rather than the individual artworks they create. Mm. So that was really the big statement I wanted to make. And the fact that James was so hands-on with the survey and setting it up means that I um, had to, you know, attribute him as one of the artists of that work, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And only one-eighth of your total output as uh, an artist uh, has been shown in exhibition. So that must have been a quite a hard process to make some selections. And I wonder <laughs> what were the main limitations that you encounter in making a retrospective exhibition? Um, I mean, you, you, you kind of need limitations, I think, for anything. So I, did, I wasn't frustrated by not being able to show everything myself I guess the main limitation is that a lot of the work doesn't exist or I don't know where it is mm -hmm. um, so I really let James select the work primarily you know I was concerned that it be hung chronologically so I wanted I, I numbered all my decorative paintings so I still wanted to start at one and then work through the numbers to the end at 200 and something and so obviously there are big gaps between each work. It's not like I've got every single work in there. And because James has a good eye for 
curating, I really wanted him to pick the works out from what was physically available, either through loans from institutions such as the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane or the MCA in Sydney or private loans from friends or collectors. So he, yeah, he was kind of the final say. Or we together we we decided what would be included at, mm. just within the space available, I guess, mm. yeah. Yeah, I guess that's helpful and in a way a role of a curator to um, mm, a good to, curator, to have yeah. Yeah, a good curator <laughs> to, to have this um, to step back and, and see what is um, most I don't know valuable to be included in the show to present mm. your overall practice and I think yeah. he's done a beautiful job and also for the listeners who are interested uh, there um, so the exhibition will go until I believe a 10th of April at UNSW galleries as I have mentioned and uh, there's a couple of exhibition tours that are coming up which is where uh, James Gadd the curator will take you through the exhibition and you will hear about the key works and significant developments Developments in Elizabeth Pooley's practice, and uh, the next one is on 20th of March. But before that, there will be also a conversation between you, Elizabeth, and James titled Crisis of the Contemporary. This is on the 12th of February at 3 p.m. And I believe um, some of the things that uh, probably we spoke about today will be expanded yeah. on. And yeah. there are a few other things that are happening. Uh, if you're interested, the best thing is to go to artdesign.unsw.edu.au and uh, search for Elizabeth Pulley survey and you will find all this information there. And as well, uh, as y- you, Elizabeth, just mentioned, you have a website of your own where anyone who is interested could go and browse through your work. It's elizabethpulley.com, I believe. Is yeah. That? Yes. yeah, yeah, we're just finalizing a few details on it. But it is up for viewing. So yeah, yeah. it's it's actually a really well done website, uh, very oh, comprehensive. Thanks. Yeah, and then you know people who are on Instagram can follow you on Elizabeth Pulley. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's that's all the social media things and, and uh, <laughs> website plugs that we can give. Um, <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us today. And uh, it was fascinating to learn about your practice. And thank you for the beautiful archiving project that you have uh, done as well through the reader. Uh, Thank you, Ira. It was great to talk to you. Really good questions. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. We are coming slowly to the end of the show where I was in conversation with artist Elizabeth Pulley. Her exhibition, retrospective exhibition titled 117 Survey is currently on show at the UNSW Galleries in Pennington. You have until 10th of April to have a look. It's a free exhibition. It's well worth a visit. Coming up next is uh, Pino Scuro with Syncopatico and I will be signing off for today and we'll be with you in about uh, well in exactly two weeks time uh, when uh, we will hear from more artists and most likely artists that have environmental concerns uh, at uh, the core of their practice. Isad Radio 89.7 FM.